It was to ward off the evil eye and also to tell him that he was dressing like a dickhead. to Watching Movies at the Bar, a podcast about bar movies and movie bars. I'm Bethy Squires, and with me, as always, is Thomas Grabinski. Thomas, how's it going? You know, Bethy, I'm feeling weirdly fired up, but I don't know uh, yeah. what to attribute that to. How are you? Do you feel perhaps taken with the spirit of rock and roll? I think... I think that's certainly part of it, you know? I just think I've, I've turned into a real Odin head. We stand Odin in this household, the god and the band. And with us, not as always, as for one time, is Mike Adams from the Unspoken Request podcast and currently promoting, what, what do you call it, your your oldest and... Oldest and most recent. Uh, most recent album. Yeah. Oscillate mm-hmm. Wisely. Mike, how how are you doing? Are I'm you doing, fired up? Oh, I'm, I'm really amped. Yeah. I'm really <laughs> cranked up. I'm up to 11, I'd say. Oh, that's fun because Penelope Spheris actually turned down directing. Um, uh, oh man, audience, Spinal Tap. Yeah. Audience, uh, I have been rocking so hard recently that I have clinical insomnia and <laughs> slept two hours last night. So if I forget words like Spinal Tap or rock and roll or podcast, things that you think a person doing a podcast about rock and roll movie would know, this is why. You're not cut out for memorization. You're cut out for shredding. Rockers only know how to do one thing. Make jokes about getting pussy? Hey, I'm not joking. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, being deadly serious about getting pussy. (laughs) Yes, Penelope Spheris turned down Spinal Tap because she didn't want to make fun of metal because she loved metal. But then she accidentally made a documentary that really fucking makes fun of metal. Yeah. I was thinking about uh, this is Spinal Tap a lot while watching this movie because this is often like the fundamentally uncharming version of that. Like there are standout characters here who I find to be pretty endearing, but there are also a lot of real dickheads. A lot of big time dickheads. In Hope this. that's not a controversial take. No, I think we're going to get into the dickheads of it all. But first, as we do in every podcast, we should talk about our guests, you know, welcome them into the spirit of the podcast. Our show is about the experience of watching a movie at a bar, maybe on mute, maybe with the sound on, and like half understanding what's going on. Mike, is that something that you have a relationship to? It is, yeah, for sure. I'm not a barfly, really at all. That's not my personality. But That's true. Uh, the life that I've built for myself in the last 20 years has required me to spend hundreds of nights in bars watching TV with no sound on or with a really loud sound on being uh, some rock band playing their set while I've been on tour a lot. Uh, (laughs) So I have actually spent hundreds of hours in bars uh, watching TV. Yeah, I do have a relationship to that. You were saying um, when you were emailing stuff, you said that one time you watched an entire avant-garde German film at a bar (laughs) yeah probably three times that night i watched the whole it's only 25 (laughs) minutes long but that was when you invited me on the show that was the thing that immediately sprung to mind it's my most uh it was the most it was the experience of watching a movie in a bar that left the biggest impression on me and i think about it frequently actually it's um it's called the way things go i forget the german title but it's basically a big 
industrial pointless Rube Goldberg machine that that doesn't do anything other than mesmerize you. It just hypnotizes you and it's in a warehouse and it's like a broken ladder falls on a barrel that has a piece of burning newspaper on it and it's it's just an I endless string. This. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I love it. Uh it's this endless string of things and they were playing it we were on tour playing a show at the Bottle Tree, rest in peace, my favorite venue maybe ever in Birmingham, Alabama. And that is just what they were playing that night. So between every act and anytime you were just hanging in the bar, they just had that on the six or so TVs in the bar, just playing silently. And it was interesting to see how many people were just hypnotized by it and asking questions about it, but no one really seemed to know. I can't even remember how I found it eventually after. I think Googling like Rube Goldberg broken materials, <laughs> you know, I don't remember how, but I watched it over and over that night in the bar. Yeah. That sounds amazing to me. Why? What? What is the purpose of the hypnotism? What is the effect that it has on its observers? Good question. It felt good to me. Like it felt like uh, someone had put in just the right amount of effort into this thing, where it's like <laughs> someone who had time on their hands but wanted to do something fun with the time, but didn't care too much about the quality of the fun. <laughs> hmm. And that's it, it feels vicarious in that way. It's got a vicarious <laughs> hypnotism to it. Yeah. I feel like this sort of oddly hypnotizing Rube Goldberg thing, first of all, was completely yoinked by OK Go for like their music videos for like a decade. But then also is just a, its entire genre of TikTok now. Or like oh. even like or like the Calm app. There's so much stuff now that is just about like oddly soothing things falling or like the like those videos of compilations of like power washing videos where totally. you just watch a thing slowly get clean yeah or i'm sure there's a whole like probably six or eight like reddit communities uh dedicated just to that sensation of uh being satisfied by the things falling down yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um i have gotten back into uh wood turning youtube wood turning yeah where it's, you put like something on a lathe and then you oh sure cut it as yeah it great v -v 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 -v. yeah wonderful the technical term v -v 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 -v. <laughs> um yeah there's something I watch them on mute with like my own music on and there is something so soothing and pleasant to see an item slowly take shape even though often I hate the final product it's like yeah. they've poured resin around some colored pencils and then they make a weird fucking goblet or like the ugliest globe I've seen in my entire life. But just to watch the process is so like, hey, like they know what they're doing. They have a plan and, and I get to see them execute it. And it's nice to see something like happen from conception to finished product, even if I hate that finished product. Yeah, that was an interesting thing about this documentary is that uh, the the way things go. Um, because the beginning and end didn't matter at all, and they just had it on a loop. So there was no satisfaction other than getting sucked into it and watching the thing happen over and over and over again. And yeah, it, 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 it lacked that sort of like disappointment of, oh, I, I thought that was going somewhere and it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas, have you ever taken a gander at Rube Goldberg TikTok or Wood Turning YouTube? I have not, but something that I gravitate towards in film are movies about consummate professionals. Like, I like movies about a person who is very, very good at a thing, even if I'm not that interested in what the thing is. Just sort of, like, watching 
that meticulous quality and the machinations, like, that's something that Michael Mann really loves. Like, his guys are all, like, uh, incredible professionals. That's something that I love. I like to observe process. I really love the um, Andy Goldsworthy documentary, Rivers and Tides. Oh, yeah. Have you seen that thing? Oh, I haven't I love seen it that. For, oh, I love it for that very reason you're describing. Um, he's like a... It's not exactly a land artist, but he makes like these assemblages using the environment around him. So he just sort of like, you know, uh, futzes with some twigs until it becomes something gorgeous and then sort of abandons it in the woods to decay. And that's his art. And somehow that's uh, something he gets paid to do. Well, he photographs it and sells the photographs. Oh, okay. I <laughs> forgot that that was like the product at the end. Yeah. Can't forget that part. When I was in college, there was this... um detroit artist named scott hawking is that a name that means anything to either of you i don't know it um he, he came in and, and he gave a speech but something that he would his primary art form was basically going into dilapidated vacant spaces and using the materials present to create like a monolith he would create a pyramid he would create a giant egg he would create something that to him would be awe-inspiring if he were to stumble upon it And then the work was twofold. He would obviously take a photo of that and display it in a gallery, but he would also just leave the thing in the space, not tell anyone where it was, and just trust that someone would stumble upon it and be wowed by it. I know that's not really what we're talking about, but I think about his work a lot. I think that's... Oh, I think think it sounds like he's doing urban Andy Goldsworthy. Mm -hmm. Sounds very Yeah, very similar. Yeah. And down to like building eggs out of stones and stuff. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Scott, are you cribbing Andy? Oh, no, that sounds like a good take on it. It sounds like a smart take on it. Yeah, it's like, first of all, that is the nature of uh, northern Michigan is like abandoned buildings, unfortunately. But it also sort of speaks to, in in the way that like Annie Goldsworthy stuff is like imposing order on nature, the person you were discussing, Thomas, has something to say about like the folly of man making all these things that wind up getting fucking torn down sure yeah i'm sure there i'm sure there are plenty of statements in there somewhere i just am not smart enough to uh, arrive at those conclusions speaking of not being smart enough to see the logical end of things we're talking about decline of western civilization <laughs> part two the metal years beautiful transition episode. beautiful transition <laughs> excellent transition and my favorite part about the whole movie mike why did you want to talk about this movie oh i love this movie so much i have a few reasons for loving this movie I did almost, because I've seen it a few times before, and it's it's one that I love. I thought about watching it this time with the sound off, but I decided not to because I like the sound too much. But uh, I picked this because it feels like a rare, it's a documentary, but it's humorous, uh, sometimes inadvertently, sometimes, you know, talking about Penelope Spheris, sometimes she like injects humor in this way. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about Spinal Tap, and it's like, there are things that she does where she's not making fun of the people or the scene, but she's like toying with movie making in a way that I think is very fun and funny that lends itself to feeling like Spinal Tap, even though it, this is real. Mostly, you know. I, what else? I don't know. Uh, it, it, it's it, The thing I think is unique about it is that it's frozen in its time period at the very end of that time period. Uh <laughs> And everyone in it, the hubris of this movie, I love so much. <laughs> I just love everyone's confidence. It came out in 1988. Nirvana's Nevermind came out in 1991. So it's like three years later, these people's dreams are completely dashed culturally in a way that I think is fascinating. And uh, yeah, I don't know how deep you want to go. There's more to it, but we can we can start and 
pick things apart, but uh, yeah, something yeah. something you just mentioned that I was so struck by that permeates the whole thing is that confidence you're talking about. And there is a sequence of the film where she's asking each of these kids, like, "What else would you do if you didn't do this?" And none of them have an answer for that. And it's not just that they haven't thought about it; it's that they defiantly believe this is the only thing that they will ever do. And for most of them, it didn't bear out in a meaningful way. But but to see them with that real certainty just makes this feel like a, a really electric moment in time, even if it's about to end. Yeah, and it feels like an artifact for that reason, too, I think. Because without access to the internet, for instance, I think pride as sort of a um, defense mechanism works better. Because your pride can be taken down by the internet very quickly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's... um. It is, it's almost, almost heartbreaking, that whole montage, except for that so many of those dudes have been so fucking odious up until <laughs> that point, saying like the vilest shit in the world that you you don't really feel bad that their pride is go a thing before a fall. Yeah. But there's also an element to that montage where they're like, I'm either going to be a rocker or I'm going to be in the gutter. <laughs> like right. they, They've made that, that really clear. Like, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to make or it. Or I'll die. Unless I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. if you Google these guys, it's slightly less tragic. Most of them, instead of being dead, are now uh, Teamsters. So that's uh, that's oh, an alternative. That's good. You know, I, I planned to do that and just ran out of time, but I'm kind of glad I didn't. <laughs> I'm glad. I do. I did watch um, Chris Holmes. You know, yeah. he's the guy from Wasp who's in the swimming pool with his mother. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> uh, I did watch. He, he has a new documentary, newish documentary out that I watched on Night Flight TV. That is kind of a where is he now catching up with that dude, which was fascinating to watch. Is that called Mean Man? Or it's called Mean Man or Mean Guy? Or something? Yeah, Mean Man. Yeah. I think it's Mean, mean Man. Man. Yeah, yeah. I it is. Uh, the first thing I did was Google that guy to see if he had died, but he got sober in '96. Yeah, and you know, Whoa. fucking hats off. Good job, man. He sobered up and continues to rock. Yeah, he just carries on. He lives in Cannes now. With yeah. his hot French wife. Okay. Good for him, man. He's, he's doing really well. Yeah, at the time, Wasp alleged, or, or not at the time, but shortly thereafter, Wasp alleged that Penelope Sphere is keeping that sort of iconic pool scene where he's really fucked up next to his mom, ruined his career. But it sounds like, from what you're saying, it may have catalyzed sobriety and sort of paved the way to something else. I, it's really hard to imagine seeing yourself in that state presented in that way and not having to reckon with it <laughs> and it's so prolonged I, i'm sure yeah. we're going to get into this but you really yeah. sit with that interview yeah i'm going to take a step back and sort of intro the movie for people who haven't seen it or aren't aware of penelope spheris's like larger body of work decline of western civilization part two is part two of three of spheris's movies that look at the rock culture of los angeles at like three different like pivotal times. So part one is about sort of like the death of the LA punk scene and the birth of the Orange County hardcore scene. So it's got like more, it's got like the bags, it's got early go-go's, it's got like women in it, which doesn't happen as much in part two. Um, but then you're starting to see sort of like Black Flag and those guys like rise up and like the, the tenor of the, the scene is changing and it's all like right there in the same way. <laughs> Part two is about the very apotheosis of hair metal and the Sunset Strip scene and all of the really cool guys there who make great choices. <laughs> and then part three, she thought was going to be about sort of like have a resurgence of 
punks that looked like the ones that she remembered from the 70s, but then turned into a much more sober look at the housing crisis or like well, not it wasn't a housing crisis then it was really more about unhoused teens who ran away and became gutter punks and that's the one that she's most proud of and it's the one that she met her long-term partner while filming he was a um a crust punk named sin who was like a subject of the documentary and then they like like a couple years later like hit it off and then they've been together i think ever since wow i didn't know any of that i didn't know any of that about her personal life so the the decline movies are like she she considers them like her greatest work because after part two, partially because of how well she shot the like metal shows in part two, she gets a job directing Wayne's World, and that is she calls it like the best and worst thing to ever happen to her. <laughs> it made and unmade her um because after Wayne's World she could only get jobs directing like comedies and she didn't think that she was funny she didn't think that she wanted to like work on these comedies but that's what she spent like a decade doing is just being like a comedy jobber for broadway video and then she basically quit hollywood after working with uh the weinsteins on a movie and they uh were horrible to her but only professionally not uh interpersonally and she said fuck it and uh stop making movies after that yeah but she still reissuing the decline movies helped her like mend her relationship with her daughter. So there's a happy ending at the end. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I've only seen the second one. I have also only seen the second one. And people say that one is kind of the definitive uh, one, right? Like, is, isn't that the one that people tend to hold up as like the best one? I think I heard more about two because of sort of like the schadenfreude of it. I think... From like a sort of uh, trading weird tapes energy. Totally. Uh, yes. Two is like the one people like hold up, but as actual films, one is very interesting. It's more it's more in line with what she wanted to do. Two is a little sillier. There's as we're going to talk about. There's like weird sound effects sometimes, <laughs> like Hanna Barbera like boop, 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 noises, and. Some of that was because of the producers that were working with her from New Line. They're actually the people who wound up making um, Little Miss Sunshine. Oh, funny. And so they had a, they were going for more like black comedy, making fun of hair metal. And she wanted to do more with like Megadeth. She was like, I want to talk to Megadeth because they're fucking metal. And they're like, we want you to talk to Odin because they're silly boys. (laughs) Interesting. I wish I knew. Well, maybe I don't wish I knew, but I'm glad to know now about that tension in creating it. I think that's, uh, I don't know if that it, that it shines through, but I think that it is felt. <laughs> yeah. So, Thomas, you've only seen two, and this is your first experience seeing two. How did you find it? I, I mean, I thought it was fascinating. I think this particular era of metal to me is kind of uh, an abhorrent aesthetic, but it's also so hyper-specific. And it's really fascinating to see that there were these places like Gazaris that cater specifically to this culture, to this fashion, to this sound. Um, it's just a cool slice of a world. And everyone is is such a bonehead in saying the most ridiculous things that it just feels like a really great comprehensive profile of something I hadn't seen before. Yeah. Have you ever like spent much time on the Sunset Strip, Thomas? I have, but the vibe is so much different now. Like I'll go to the Roxy to see like black metal bands you know or like it's swedish post-rock bands but it's a totally different vibe than what you see in this movie 
Yeah, the only time I ever went to the Roxy was to see Mickey Blanco, which is, again, a very different vibe. (laughs) I guess I went to the Viper Room once to see a friend's friend's very bad band play. Oh, same. And they were like, they were like decked out in leather. They they felt kind of like a a Hinder tribute, you know, like just sort of mid-aughts butt rock um so that felt kind of transporting and maybe like uh, the nearest experience i've had to what's depicted here i've had dinner a couple of times at the rainbow bar and grill which is like they show like one shot of it but it became like it's pretty iconic in the hair metal scene like in that um <laughs> netflix movie the dirt most of the scenes where they're like hanging out on the stripper they just use the interiors of rainbow for that and it's where lemmy basically posted up every day that he wasn't on tour for like his last like decade, two decades of life. He was there every single day playing video poker. I will say Lemmy is one of the guys in this doc who I think comes off pretty well. I mean, I I like Motorhead. There are only a couple of bands featured here that I think have ever been in my rotation, but like, I like Motorhead. I like Lemmy and I like his sort of matter of fact, like unpretentious wisdom. Yeah, Lemmy seems really grounded in this thing somehow. <laughs> yeah, when Lemmy is like the guy with the most perspective <laughs> in <Yeah>. your scene. <laughs> There's a really sweet moment where they're asking Lemmy, like, Lemmy, what advice would you give to a rung or like a young rocker who wants to make it? And he's like, I don't know, I made it. I mean, if I made it, anybody can make it. Uh, you know, just take it, run it up the flagpole, see who salutes it. Like, I, I, th- there was just something like, I don't know, anybody can do it. I'm an idiot. You can do it, too. Yeah, I like also when the when they ask if he's jealous of the good looking guys. He's like, oh, "Yeah, man. I wish I was good looking." <laughs> yeah, he's oh. like, uh, "Oh, I I wrote it down. Let me find it really quick." It's so it's so cute because you can tell that like it seems like maybe Penelope is like setting him up to say something like bitchy, but he says, "Good luck to them if they're pretty." Wish I was. Yeah, <laughs> he has one other quote that I love so much is there, which is they're asking him how he feels about younger bands ripping him off, you know, or like appropriating the specific sounds of Motorhead. And he goes, you know, I don't care. More power to them. Hopefully they'll create something that I can rip off one day. Like, yeah, the other bands get kind of territorial. Lemmy is just like so practical. Ozzy, too, is like, hey, you know, <laughs> yeah. There's nothing new in rock and roll. This is a very derivative sound. Don't worry about it. Aerosmith is pissed, though. <laughs> yeah. I love all the veterans in this thing. Because, you know, because all those kids are so, like we were talking before, like they're so proud and they're so certain of themselves and lost in this dream. And the veterans have all been through the dream in some stage or, or varying degrees of success. And they've all been weathered by it in different ways. And I like I like seeing that spectrum of uh, from Lemmy, who's like grounded and positive, you know, and uh, maybe there's some melancholy to his deal all the way to like Dave Mustaine, who is as like cocky as those kids, (laughs) but a little smarter, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Dave Mustaine comes off better in this than he does in some kind of monster and some kind of monster. He just seems like a wiener here. He has... Yeah, I think I think some wisdom and perspective, and at least purports to be less of an egomaniac. I appreciate that he's the only person who says, don't try to get famous. Yeah. When he's asked, like, yeah. do you have any uh, advice for Epic Home Bands? He's like, don't. It's really bad. You're not going to have a good time, I promise you. Well, that was the part of the Chris Holmes bit, is when, uh, 
you know, he just lets a few of those really honest answers fly when he's like, uh, oh, I don't like my life. My life's bad. Don't try to have my life. It's really, it sucks being me. I said, I, he thinks he's like, I would much rather be poor and happy than what I have now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Dave Mustaine has that, that I think actually very sage moment where he says that he never wants to get so steeped in this rock star persona that if he were to break, like, like have his arm cut off, never be able to play again, that he would have to transition back to being a bum. He just kind of wants to live comfortably in a space that he could continue to live in. I don't know. Some of these guys have good perspective. I've been having Dave Mustaine's uh, TikTok fed to me by the algorithm recently. And Dave Mustaine does a TikTok? What? It's mostly been him and his family just like eating in a fancy restaurant with their dog in a little carrier at the head of the table. I haven't, d- I, haven't like, I haven't dug in to see what's going on, <laughs> oh, but it's just like Dave Mustaine like, hey, I'm here with my family. We're having a fancy dinner. They're drinking wine and like, I don't know, there's candles. And they're at a, I don't know, some nice restaurant and the dog's there. Yeah. I got to know where Dave Mustaine dines. Yeah. This is I, all I'm going to think him. about now. <laughs> Fuck. Unreal. Oh, my God. That I I have. I had things to say, but they've like absolutely left my brain now. So let's uh, pivot Wait, back. Bethy and Mike, I have a quick question for both of you, and maybe this is in your repertoire, Bethy. But what what are your respective relationships to this era and tenor of metal? Because this is not really my speed. I grew up in the Midwest in the late 1980s, at the tail end of the Satanic Panic, <laughs> in a very religious family. I have a I have a very vivid memory. Of um, I should say rural as well. It's also rural. Uh, maybe I said Midwest, and that goes without saying. But uh, <laughs> I have a very vivid memory of going to South Whitley Days one time. South Whitley is this dinky little place, hometown of Janie Fricky. If you want to talk about pop country music, uh, but it's also my dad's hometown. It's just this little farm crossroads, right? And they had South Whitley Days, which is where all the farmers come out and have a. It's basically like a you know, uh, Founders Day, Fourth mm. of July parade kind of deal. And so everybody from the area comes out and you're hanging out and eating corn dogs and tenderloins and whatnot. And uh, I was a young child, very young. And I remember walking by this band of teenagers who were playing Poison's Unskinny Bop. (laughs) And I remember them saying, I don't remember if they were singing it and I just heard the lyric or if they said, this is Unskinny Bop. (laughs) And I remember my mom grabbing my ear with one of her hands and my brother's ear with her other hand and pressing our bare ear against her hips so that we couldn't hear what was ha- like trying to shield us from the what's happening with the teenagers who are basically doing poison cosplay and singing uh, unskinny bop and for years for ages i thought i don't know what unskinny bop means but it must be the evilest thing that there could be and then when i became an adult and had access to youtube it was like i'm gonna find out what unskinny bop is and I watched the video for Unskinny Bop, and it's one of the stupidest things you've ever seen. I still don't know what it means. Uh, it's just a goofy, corny pop song. And then beyond that, my brother is a little more rebellious than me, and he got into Kiss when we were teenagers. Nice. And when I finally heard Kiss, my brother had a six-foot, like a Hot Topic uh, t- Kiss tapestry on his wall. And uh, when he finally bought a Kiss CD and I heard Kiss for the first time, it was like, this is like blues rock what is this this is nothing and so all the wind got sucked out of the fear of this music but it still holds this weird place for me of fear and wonderment and uh, excitement 
and things I'm like not supposed to look into, but I really want to. There's a lot. It's really titillating to me. I have uh, not with this specific era, but I have a similar experience because I grew up in a very Christian home in the rural Midwest, and I basically wasn't supposed to listen to rock music of any kind for like most of my youth, and so like. Any any little bit I had access to was the most exciting thing to me. Like, I, I heard a Green Day song, and I was like, this is the hardest shit I have ever heard <laughs> in my life. Because it was so much harder than Come Thy Fount of Every Blessing. Sure, um, yeah. So anyway, I, I, I identify with that deeply. Great. Thomas, yeah. I forgot to tell you that I booked your future self on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mike, nice to meet you. Hello from the future. I feel I do kind of feel like I'm like... In the if the movie Looper was a podcast and nobody wanted to kill each other for reasons, I had a different experience with hair metal as a kid. Tell us, um, as a as a, a latchkey kid with cable, for me this movie was like really flashed me back to my VH1 era of just watching every single behind the music, and it does still have a little bit of that same like childhood. Not necessarily fear, but like titillation and like, oh, this is, there's nobody, there's never going to be anything as cool when I'm older, like the Sunset Strip in the 80s. And that sort of like, you know, excess, that's the coolest thing a person can do with their life. (laughs) And and then growing up and being like, oh, these guys are all fucking dorks. (laughs) My bad. Bethy, you're the one fan of the dirt that I know. Is that right? Um, I had a lot of fun watching the dirt. I don't okay. know if I would call myself a fan, but it, it really treated me right during <laughs> the early days. Was that during the pandemic? The that was the days? Motley Crue movie? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Yeah, I liked it quite a bit. Yeah. I only I watched it one time, but days. I did, I did like it. Yeah. Um, something about these like dumb little goobers. I think it is, it's just sort of, uh, you know, I imprinted on VH1 very early in life and it sort of hit something for me there. And reminds me of also like my Chuck Klosterman fascination because he was such a metalhead as a kid and writes about that a lot. It's having being conversant in hair metal is something that I didn't know was important to me. But now that I'm saying it out loud, it's like, oh, yeah, this is kind of this is kind of part of it. Part of what's going on with Bethy is like (laughs) seeing like chicks in hair metal things and like early, early queer awakening is like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Got it. So it's all sort of like it's it's very like a uh, this movie is reminds me of being a literal child, which is I not I don't think what Penelope Spears was going for. <laughs> yeah, I think that's nice. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit more about some of the set pieces in the movie. As the more clout somebody had, the more likely they were able to like tell Penelope how they wanted to shoot their their scenes. So like Kiss, the guys in Kiss picked their scenes. Oh Paul my Stanley, God. Paul Stanley laying <laughs> in that bed with those women. Unbelievable. <laughs> and saying nothing. Even Gene Simmons says a few things that are like, okay, I'll chew on that for a while. But Paul Stanley, it's like, you just want me to look at you doing this. <laughs> I-, I could not believe it. That was one of that was like one of the most Final tap moments in the dock when you first cut to him and he's is it is are there three women splayed across him? Three, oh, yeah. this is the part that makes it so funny. Is the first shot is a close where it's just him and one woman, yeah. and then they cut to somebody else and they cut back and it's the wide and it's it's shot from above and it's a bed yeah with three other women. <laughs> My God, 
just imagine, like, from a technical perspective, it's like, you want us to put the camera above the bed shooting downward? That's like, <laughs> that's technically annoying. Come on. <laughs> yeah, the the scenes, and, and Gene Simmons also said that he didn't want to do anything tacky. How about a lingerie store? That was his <laughs> Oh, that, that first bit with him where he kind of, like, feigns being distracted by that woman is just painful. It's painful to watch. He's just telegraphing something to you that's so ugly Un- and unbelievable in a way that I mean is like, I don't believe you. <laughs> Gene Simmons is the fucking pits. And if you want to understand why, Google Gene Simmons rock and bruise allegations. And that's all I'm going to say on that. Oh, no. I haven't Googled that. I'll have to do it afterward. Oh, no. And then, and then of course, we have Ozzy's breakfast. I love it so much. Those Aussie scenes are all great. He says good things. I, I like the the goof of the orange juice being poured all over the table so much. Uh, yeah. yeah. She she did say later that that wasn't his hand. That was like a pickup shot they got later. But yeah. I'm sure Ozzy didn't care. He's fucking no. like, he's like TV gold. The section with Ozzy is so incredible because he has a borderline monologue where he's talking about like, the trials of being a rocker and and he intimates heavily that the band is now reformed that they're rehabilitated and then eventually penelope spiris says so is is your life easier now and he says no just with perfect comedic timing he's a fucking larger than life character truly he's tv gold you like really understand why the osbournes was as huge as it was yeah he's completely charming i also like that uh a couple things that he says one, in contrast to all those kids who are like, I've never had a job. This is all I do. And Ozzy's like, oh, I do this because I had a job. I worked in factories and I hated it and I'll never do it again. And I love that, that he's just like, oh, yeah, I was like a blue collar factory worker. And this was my escape hatch. And I also love at the very end when he says, uh, I can't remember exactly how he words it, but he's like, uh, you're going to meet a lot of people on the way up. Don't fuck anybody because you're going to meet him again on your way down. Yeah. <laughs> Always important advice. Yeah. <laughs> and and when he sort of wife guys out about Sharon being his manager, I appreciate that as well. Yeah. But watching him like do this business, I do kind of wonder how the scene got like chosen because in Decline Part 1, Darby Crash is like cooking in a kitchen for his scenes too. So I wonder if this is like... I don't know if Penelope Spears was like, well, if one of them is going to OD, it might be Ozzy. So let's, for <laughs> parallel structure, let's put him in the same thing as Darby. <laughs> or or what? <laughs> but- yeah, good question. Because I also have to wonder, like, it's not, surely they scheduled it. It's not as if they, like, knocked on his door one morning and he's like, oh, I've just got out of bed. <laughs> Come in while I'm making breakfast. Like, they had to set all that up. And And there's no way he's eating that breakfast because... <laughs> No way. If you look at it, the bacon is maybe a quarter cooked. It's And like they're all on top of each other. So it's like congealed into this half cooked blob that just sort of plonks on a table. And like the tea has been boiling the entire time that he's been interviewed. So it's like there's only about two inches left in the pot. He's just been like, ste- he's been like steam has been like filling that kitchen for the entire <laughs> time that he's been doing the interview. <laughs> It's, Bethy, it's the fucking guys, best. You're a keen observer. Oh. <laughs> no, go ahead, Mike. So, oh, I'm so sorry. No, I was good. just going to ask if you guys had seen 20,000 Days on Earth. Yes, uh, the Nick Cave film. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. a great scene where he and Warren Ellis are like having a meal and telling stories. And that whole movie has a, 
kind of similar, like surreal quality to it where it's like, what in this is documentary? What is staged? What is put on? Uh, including that moment where Warren Ellis tells that great Nina Simone story while they're eating. Uh, but it's like, this all had to be put together. <laughs> I wonder what's, how much of this is real, you know? Uh, I, I love that film. I also love, um, I can't recall the name of it, but the film he made with Andrew Dominic uh, around the release of The Skeleton Tree. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Oof. It's it's really good. It was after his son um, passed very tragically. It's it's a sure. film about that grief, and it intersperses you know studio footage with narrative, and it's phenomenal. Anyway, big Nick K fan. But Thomas, you were go- uh, going back to what you were saying about how I'm a keen observer. Oh, you are a keen observer, which is to say that you... You watched that and you knew that what he was preparing was actually an inedible breakfast um, and that this was a performance, whereas I watched it and I thought, oh, maybe it's actually easier to prepare bacon than I think, you know, like maybe, maybe it doesn't all have to be touching a hot surface. Maybe it can overlap a bit and you can just not pay attention, but um, I'm easily duped and I'm going to be food poisoned. (laughs) This is how you OD on raw bacon. I didn't know about movie magic. I thought this was all real. <laughs> well, that's what I love about all the performance footage, too. Beth, you mentioned that earlier as being like a, her gateway into Wayne's World. And it's like uh, it's shot in kind of a genius way where there's always an establishing shot of the rock club or whatever. And then all the pickup shots are staged uh, and often like not always, but often like, uh, you know, they're pantomiming or whatever. Right. Uh, and I love it. I think it's great. And it's seamless. Like you don't think about it when you're watching. It just feels like you're getting a real uh, view of this act, whatever it may be, whoever it was. And I also think that that is a creative choice does not really render uh, the performances inauthentic because hair metal itself is so performative and hyper stylized that to depict it in that way, I think is consistent with those semantics. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Before she made any feature length films, Penelope Spheres founded, I think, founded a company called Rock and Real, and they made promotional videos. So that's like all she did for like the first five years of her career was shoot bands. And like, so what she would do during like the her early years was um, she would shoot like Wild Cherry or like Peaches and Herb or something, and then take that equipment and go shoot X <laughs> with it at night. Wow, that makes total sense, actually, knowing what those performances look like in the movie. It's like, oh, yeah, that's that's a great tool bag to bring to making this documentary. This seems like a good time to talk a little bit more about p- her career in general, because as we were saying that she got Wayne's World partially from this movie, but partially because even before she had been f- shooting those promo reels for people, she was the producer on most of Albert Brooks's shorts for SNL. Oh, wow. She so she worked for Lauren Michaels like at the beginning of SNL, and she was like, "Yeah, they didn't let women direct stuff there. They were like, uh, they told me to like sweep, and then Uh. you know later, uh, she was like, Lauren was like, oh, I think we said that she could do something, and so they like suggested her, and then watched Decline too, and they're like, oh yeah, this will work, and then she didn't get to direct the sequel because she and Mike Myers had such a bad like experience working with each other. Yeah. I read an interview with her about that experience one time. Yeah. <laughs> as much as I like a lot of Mike Myers work of that period, he is known to be a terror. <laughs> yeah. So. He very much gets in his own way. It seems like, but I, I am a Mike Myers Stan. 
I, I, I am I am a fan. I think there is an insecurity that runs through him that makes him very challenging. But, you know, he's done a lot of good stuff. Yeah, I'm glad I get to watch his movies and I don't have to work on them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, his memoir is actually one of the books uh, <laughs> propping up my microphone here. I very love it. Good. Just Bethy, so you, know. You, know the, you know the big Wayne's World 2 story with Mike Myers, right? I don't know if I do. So Mike Myers wrote a script for Wayne's World 2 that he was very proud of. He took it to the studio. They thought it was great. They are two weeks out from production, and it is revealed to the executives that Mike Myers has uh, written a riff on a film that already exists, and they had not realized. They were not able to clear that. They were not able to make his loose adaptation of a pre-existing work uh, so they sat him down, they screamed at him, and made him write a new Wayne's World 2 in two weeks. And that is the movie that exists. Wow. That that tracks, because the love guru is just a riff on the party, and Austin <laughs> Powers is a riff on, um, like, our man Flint, and the, the James X? James King? A, a TV spy show from England in the 70s. Which makes sense from a guy who g- made his name uh, on SNL. You know, right. Spoofing yeah. things. <laughs> yeah. He's a spoofer. He is. Spoofer's going to spoof. You know, the last podcast that I was a guest on like this, uh, Paul Myers was also a guest on that show, who is Mike Myers' brother. So, <laughs> huh. Yeah, he, he wrote one of the Kids in the Hall books. Yeah, we talked about like that a little he... bit. Yeah, the one. One dumb guy. It's a great title. You were saying something, Thomas? Maybe just that I would love to read that Wayne's World 2 script that never came to be, because I'm sure it's very funny. Yeah. But back to rock and roll. Back to rock and roll. Mike, how did you first see this movie? That's a good question. You know, you mentioned the tape trade stuff earlier. Mm -hmm. I think the same people that were sharing, like, Shut Up Little Man and uh, Daddy's Curses and Longmont Potion Castle tapes with me turned me on to this after, soon after I moved to Bloomington. <laughs> Wait, Thomas, have you ever listened to any Longmont Potion Castle? No, I have not. I oh my goodness. Like that's that's going to do it for you. I have a feeling. Longmont Potion Castle. Longmont, I think? L- Longmont. Mont. Longmont Potion yeah. Castle. Mm-hmm. The, it's these prank calls from a guy in the Denver area mm-hmm. where he, he calls like all sorts of people, but the one that I'm, I... I'm remembering right now is he just keeps threatening to put a spider on somebody's head. <laughs> <laughs> They're so surreal and he'll often like use sound effects like like a like a you know like a guitar effect pedal, like a delay or a reverb or something to confuse the people on the line. But he also he's he's a master of language in this way that is is what appeals to me the most about it is that he can just toss out uh a string of English words that make no sense, but are a catchphrase somehow. Uh, and then he just will hammer that into a person. And his pranks often, you know, occasionally they're like true prank calls, but oftentimes they're just confusing phone calls that have been recorded. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and the way people react to the confusion is what's fun about them. Some people play along and are just like tickled by it. Some people get so angry. Uh, and there are some people you can tell that he has called them much too much (laughs) (laughs) that yeah that sounds right up my alley i as a kid i liked 
crank yankers, but I, I don't suspect that any of that would play for me now. Yeah. This, this feels like an art form to me, I, I, for sure. A much, yeah, an elevated crank yanker, as it were. That's right. <laughs> Presumably less uh, offensive, less low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Much more just surreal. It, it, <laughs> he talks like the way you name cats. Oh, Thomas. cool. Okay, he's my guy. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're set. Something that is really interesting to me about this movie is the way that it captures the metal obsession with success in a way that i felt was like so so weird (laughs) like yeah like a a very specific type of success yeah yeah there's a scene where they're like it it might be odin that they're talking to i can't remember now but they're like at a barbecue or something and one of the guys is like i want to be as famous as the beatles or led zeppelin (laughs) Uh, you know and like mentioned robert plant and it's just like uh the 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 yawning gap between the Beatles and Led Zeppelin, whose music is very different, but you can tell that it's like got the same root, right? To 80s hair metal, <laughs> uh, which is nothing like that other stuff to me. I mean, of course, there's similarities, but uh, I don't know. 80s hair metal is such a, like you said, specific sort of music and sort of genre to to not see it as like a like a niche uh, in some way is very fascinating to me. Because, I mean, it was very popular for a while. Poison was an enormous act. Yeah, I think that's part of the fascination to me is that the success that they want is, uh, and so many people vying for the same success that John Lennon had. <laughs> I do think that's part of what, what makes these personalities work, though, and, and allowed these bands to function while they did, because these people generally don't seem to be very self-aware they don't seem to contextualize themselves in a larger culture or a lineage of rock and roll. Like, they're operating in this vacuum. And so Penelope Spheris allowing the audience to step into this bizarre vacuum where no one really has frames of reference that exist outside of this culture is what makes it so delightful. Totally. Definitely. That's the thing I think I love the most about it, is that it feels like you're plopped down into, like, really into this subculture that is basically gone like it's vanished but it's the snapshot of a real moment that was a thing that was enormous but still isolated like you're saying like uh there's no frame of reference culturally otherwise than itself <laughs> and as much as gazaris is probably was probably a terrible place where terrible things happened where, where where women were treated horribly where you know bad behavior ran rampant I would like to be there just for a moment. Like, there is something just, again, I keep using this word, but it is so culturally specific. There is room only for people whose interests are these three things. And for there to be a space that size so well populated, there's just, there's not really anything like that now. Oh, that moment when he comes out and says, no bikinis, no skin, <laughs> we only want foxy rock and roll clothes. <laughs> Oh, and God. then you know, the the best part is after that people start booing him. He goes, "Boo, boo!" Yeah. <laughs> He's such He's a ham. Asking. He's incredible. Bill Gazzari. I did a deep dive on him, obviously, because look at him. Yeah. It. I think that speaks to how popular and how mainstream it was that somebody like Bill Gazzari would be like, "Well, I'm just going to hop on this right now," because you can tell this is not perhaps his favorite. <laughs> style of music i think yeah he's wearing that zoot suit the yeah, whole time <laughs> i feel like he maybe punched out around louis prima but i don't know yeah 
I think there's a good chance he died without a working understanding of the why and how of hair metal, despite being, like, the the face of that. What a character. As you were saying at the beginning, Mike, that this is shot in, in 88, or comes out in 88, and then hair metal is dead by 91 with grunge, Bill Gazzara is literally dead in 1991. Wow. You're, this is a guy who... He's been on the Sunset Strip since the 60s. Gazzari's was a nightclub in the 60s. And he he saw it through, like, disco and then punk and then hair metal. I think dressing like a gangster the entire time. <laughs> Chomping his cigar. Uh, you know, paying off whatever mob people control those properties. I think it's a smart trick, though, to stay in that suit because it lends authenticity to his, like, enthusiasm that he's like, this is who I am, but this is what the people want. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the the thing. I think because I grew up, you know, I grew up in the 90s when selling out was like the worst thing a person could do. It was like sell out and then genocide would be like a close second as far as like worst (laughs) thing you can do. And then sort of coming up in folk punk, where again, it's very similar order of uh, operations, uh, seeing people whose specific goal is to sell out is so interesting. And it, it's so crazy to me that that entire like ethic was like obliterated in like five years. Yeah, totally. Uh, I, I try, I don't know. It feels a little too easy sometimes for me to think about like, oh, Nirvana comes through the door and it's all over. Because I was thinking about that while I was watching, like, these guys all kept going for the most part, doing something. Mm-hmm. And like I was saying, Chris Holmes is still, he's in France now, still loading his gear into the back of his hatchback and driving to the show to play. And all those other, other you know, those hair metal guys evolved into something musically, uh, whether it's the butt rock you were talking about earlier or whatever. That is what I feel like I need to do more homework on now. Is like, what happened to those folks after the splinter of it? After it wasn't a congealed, powerful scene anymore. After Nirvana kind of kicked it apart. Like, what happens? This is sort of hair metal singing in the rain moment. Like, it's the advent of sound. What are all the silent film stars going to do now? Totally, yes. I think this is probably not what happened. But in my head, I feel like all of these guys were on a trajectory to being like a, a Fred Durst, you know? Like, like that, that kind of new metal aesthetic is sort of like the fashion and the culture changed. That to me feels kind of like the logical next step. But I guess it was still, what, like 15 years out or whatever? Yeah. But then like some or of 10. those styling affectations come back with like the strokes and like garage rock. Like the, the look of garage rock is like somewhere between like Ramones and Poison. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's, I think that's exactly right. My favorite Aerosmith song is Jaded. You know that one? <laughs> yeah, that's the best one. That's why. Yeah, I love that song. Uh, and I love it that Aerosmith is in this movie and that that is my favorite song of theirs because it came out in like 2002 yeah. or whatever. <laughs> Aerosmith, Aerosmith's inclusion is so crazy because it seems like Steven Tyler has learned absolutely nothing from like, he because he, he was like talked about extensively in Please Kill Me, the book about like, 70s but like 60s and 70s punk most people talking about like at at somebody's funeral i think Steve baters a woman like like he shows up Stephen tyler shows up and in a woman who dated both of them i think 
points at the casket and says, it should be you in there because he was good and you're a piece of shit. You're both <laughs> drug addicts, but he's the one who should have lived and you should have died. Whoa. He has a, a, a wild, candid moment in this that I kept waiting for him to play off as a joke, um, which is when they ask him where his fortune went and he says, up my nose. Mm-hmm. Which is like a thing that another person would say about you. But the fact that he says it about himself and and really kind of owns it, that's just not, that was not really my vision of, of who Steven Tyler was at this point in time. What was my vision of who Steven Tyler was at the time is when he compares being an Aerosmith to jerking off and that <laughs> he's found a more comfortable rhythm to make it last, the being yeah. an Aerosmith. <laughs> totally. Sorry, speaking of jerking off, one of the moments when Penelope Spheris is very, very funny behind the camera is when she is interviewing Chris from Wasp about what it feels like to be on stage, and he does kind of like a a jerking off motion, and she says, oh, beating off? And he says, (laughs) no, worse than that. But just like the way she asks is so funny, because you can tell that she's amused with herself and knows something good is going to come back to her. I, I wish there were outtakes, you know, of just her asking questions that would result in the most absurd answers, because I'm sure it exists. Totally. I do absolutely admire the balls on her. You hear way more of the questions being asked in this than you do in part one. So you hear that she does ask pretty much every single guy, like, their hog size. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. Just like a montage of that. So oh good. my god, Dave Mustaine also has this really funny line about his dick where everyone's like talking about how large theirs is. But Dave Mustaine says, it doesn't matter who makes your pencils, how you write your name. Like he, he all but says he's got a small wiener. <laughs> like, he just he just takes a very unexpected approach when answering that question. Did you ever see Dave Mustaine on uh, Celebrity Jeopardy? No. No. He he does very well. He's he's a brilliant guy, and he does like, like celebrity Jeopardy like charity events and earns a lot of money. <laughs> wow! Yeah. When he talks about the the like thematic limitations of people who have Satanist gimmicks for their metal <laughs> band, I'm like, oh. yeah, you're right. That's true. I love that. <laughs> That's so insightful. Like, don't limit yourself. And then when they ask him, why do you sing about death all the time? He's like, it's a metaphor. <laughs> He's like, he has two brains because I think he's giving very insightful answers to a lot of these questions, but then you hear him recording a Megadeth song and he's doing this sort of speech singing at the top and it's like some of the most inane lyrics you've ever heard. But it's like, he probably has good taste and he does have an understanding of like what, what should make these things work, but he still is like you know, a little dopey when he puts his pen to paper. The The lyrics are emo as fuck. And in that, but when that band is shredding and people are diving off the stage, it's it looks eighty times more fun than that London show, like totally. infinitely more fun. Megadeth rules, like the the lyrics and and even his talk singing is so secondary because when the music is going, it's like okay, this is actually great. <laughs> Dude, yeah, when you hear them riffing compared to what everyone else is doing in the movie, you're like, ooh, this is a real band, you know? Yeah, like, as soon as this deal. was over, I went and I listened to Tornado of Souls, I think, for the first time since high school, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why she puts them last, is because she she wants to end with people that she actually respects. Totally. You know? Putting all those, like, putting all those veterans at the end, bookending the movie with Poison at the beginning, and Megadeth at the end, I think, is really telling about the, like, 
arc she sees for the these people and for the movie. <laughs> yeah, I think it kind of makes you the the half singing the the audible lyrics of both Dave Mustaine and we recently watched um, some kind of monster. So you you really get to get into the songwriting process with those boys. <laughs> it it kind of makes you understand why like death metal and black metal went with it. <laughs> Like, if you can't understand the words, you can't understand how fucking goofy they are. That is, I think that is probably part of why I like, I think black metal is probably, if I have to specify where my metal interests lie, it tends to be there. But like, the reptilian, like the reptilian hiss sounds really cool and is visceral. And I I don't always need to know what they're saying. Like, sometimes they're just, you know, thrilling soundscapes. I can't believe I talked about all those tapes, tape trading, without mentioning the Derek tape. Do you guys know that one? No. I do. Oh, oh my gosh. It's one of my favorites ever. It's this crazy guy, Derek, calls his friend who is working at a record store, and the friend just kind of eggs him on for 45 minutes. But a big part of that tape is Derek talking about metal lyrics, specifically the Satan worship stuff. And he quotes Merciful Fate and like recites some Merciful Fate lyrics, half like he's doing a King Diamond impression and half like he's reading dramatic poetry. <laughs> it's, really, it's really wonderful. Uh, but he talks a lot about the lyrical content of uh, a different brand of metal than we see in The Decline, uh, but certainly related. That does get me thinking, like, I guess my favorite metal subgenre would be probably like stoner metal or sludge metal. Oh, sure. um, which mm-hmm. has no words usually. Yeah, long long passages. Yeah, maybe the yeah. occasional poem about hobbits, and then back to the. <laughs> but Mike, what about you? Good question. I am a real appreciator of metal, but I'm also scattershot in my taste of it. Uh, I like stoner metal. Uh, that Earth record, uh, the bees made honey in the lion's skull. I don't yeah. even. Can you call Earth metal? I don't know. Are they probably technically? Yeah. Uh, I think the intensity yeah, of the droning yeah. is metal. Uh, that's my favorite sort of stoner brand of that. Uh, but I also like Metalcore. Zeo is one of my favorite bands. Oh, ever. dude, you like that uh, Christian metal. Well, that's where I come from. My whole... Oh, okay. So my... I talked earlier about growing up rural uh, and Christian. And in my high school, just good timing, late 90s, Christian hardcore is this enormous yeah. thing. So there's this whole Christian hardcore scene... Some of the guys from my favorite Christian hardcore band in my high school had a side project that was more of like an emo thing that they called the band Dave Mustaine. <laughs> Wait, so so Mike, I got to know, are you a Norma Jean guy? I have seen Norma Jean live a couple times. Uh, I had one album. Actually, my brother had one that I would listen to with him, but I was way more of a Zayo head for sure. They were more my... They were two years before, you know. So. I have an older brother who I think has probably exactly overlapping, like, Christian metal and hardcore interests to you. So I'm aware of a lot of this. That's great. <laughs> I love that. That's great. I saw Zayo recently, so. <laughs> it's cool to know they're still kicking. Oh, they, I'll tell you what. Their uh, last two albums are maybe their best two albums. Whoa! I... Yeah. I got to check those out. I, I genuinely will check those out. Yeah. The 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 most recent one has kind of this like spacey, not quite stonery, but like more heavy and slow and cosmic feel to it than they've ever done. And the one before that is just wild riffing that is 
may, I think that might be my favorite album of theirs. Pyrrhic Victory is the name of it. Whoa. Good name. Yeah. Yeah, and name. when you say spacey, are we talking usual suspects, K-Packs, what? K-Packs, for sure. <laughs> Otherworldly, cosmic. Hey, he didn't do a video this year. We didn't get a Christmas. He didn't do Let Me Be Frank. Yeah. Everyone was waiting on Christmas Eve with bated breath. Their families had COVID. They were locked in their room. They wanted to see Spacey open a fucking oven, and he didn't do it. Let down. Brutal. Mike, when you started like playing in bands... In your, uh, in theory, like the era where you could have been an arrogant young teen on the Sunset Strip, what were your like goals or or hopes or like fondest wishes of success? Oh, my favorite bands were the bands that uh, the bass player was in my gym class in high school, <laughs> and I would go to these shows in the we, it was called the Fireman's Building, but it was just like a community building where another kid from my high school named Aaron would book shows every other weekend. And there would be five bands on these hardcore shows, and there would be occasionally something more melodic that was like, oh, I could do that. Because <laughs> I, you know, look at me, I'm a wiener, I'm no metal guy. But uh, <laughs> I loved that stuff, and just participating in that scene was my whole ambition. Like, I just want to be good enough to participate with these guys that sit next to me in class that I sort of worship a little bit, and in so, like, awe-inspired. Uh, and that was my entire... <laughs> ambition was to just be a part of that thing my family's really musical my dad played in a band called faith for a while when i was a kid that were like ex hair metal guys who then started like a church band right they they became born again and started this church band and my dad played so they invited him my my dad is very much like a bluegrass feller so i have these memories also of being a kid and seeing my dad play in the spammer, we would make fun of my dad because he played bass. And he would just play it so straight. He would just be standing on stage, back straight, <laughs> uh, holding the bass up high, and like maybe tapping his right foot. And that's, and like stoic. While the, <laughs> uh, while the drummer's like spinning the drumstick around, throwing it into the crowd, and uh, the, the other guy's playing like a BC Rich Warlock. You know? uh, oh, the BC one- Rich Warlock. What a, what a shape. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, wonderful memories of of the weird contrast and kind of anything goes in music, you know. I yeah, I feel like maybe that's something that you lose here in LA is like every the the local scene overlaps so completely with the industry scene that right it's hard to like you can't start like comedy here and you can't start playing shows local shows here because like. The closest venue to me, there are no basements. The closest venue to me is the Viper Room. Right. <laughs> well, I guess the Montalban is closer, but like, you know. Yeah, there's just such an establishment. Yeah. And that's the hometown. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Me and Bethy are going to break through, though. We're starting a band. Mm-hmm. We're oh, going to be well, that's... bigger than Lennon, uh, Vladimir, <laughs> not John. Yeah, sure. As in taller. We're just, we're going to be taller. <laughs> well, Tom's is going to get on my shoulders and then we've got to beat already. Big trench coat. Together, yeah. we're bigger than all those guys. <laughs> um, have we missed anything? I would just like to shout out to this. This movie does a great job of giving us a lot of different perspectives on metal. And my favorite, and also the one I respect least, is the probation officer. Yes, thank you so much. Who is... <laughs> 
deadly serious when she talks about metal to the point where when it started and she was talking about the lineage of metal and its sort of evolution from other strains of rock, I thought she was a fan and that they were saying like, look, this is someone who wears a suit and tie to work, but loves this genre. And you find out, no, she's a professional dedicated to understanding the genre so that she can quote, unquote, de-metal the youths who come in. Um, and her talking very proudly about the de-meddling program is amazing. Funny. That's that's one of the best things I've ever seen in a doc. The part where she like fucking Da Vinci codes what the devil horns mean. <laughs> oh my god, yes! <laughs> that's so great. <laughs> where she's like, you make it makes a six with your hands and you put three fingers the three fingers down represents the rejection of the Trinity <laughs> and like all this fucking shit. Oh, it's like that wonderful viral clip of that woman deconstructing the Monster Energy logo. Have you seen that? No. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, it's excellent. It's the exact same thing from a lady who's uh, more earnest and more intense, where she holds up this graphic of the Monster Energy logo and deconstructs the 666s out of it and talks about how Satan is uh, getting his message to the youth through the logo on the Monster Energy can. And what is witchcraft? When the cross goes upside down, bottoms up, and the devil laughs. Something to think about. And all of these people are in queue now. Like, it's the same energy. Oh, yeah. Totally. 100%. But the, the way they intercut, sorry, her describing the, the the horns to all of the people in the scene explaining what it means, some of them are like, I don't know, it's like, it's like two ears. And then another guy's like, I think it's like devil or like, I think it's like evil shit. But like, no one, <laughs> none of, none of those meanings take hold with anyone. It like exists in this weird clinical place. The one like teen says like the Jesus Krispies think it's about the devil or whatever. I'm like, Jesus Krispies. I like that. <laughs> what could it mean? And of course, we all know that the devil horns is actually something that Dio's grandma used to do at him to like ward off evil slash tell him he was dressing like a dickhead. Uh, I did think one more thing about this movie that I want to say, and that's, uh, I think now, you know, almost 40 years later, watching it in a bar with the sound off especially if you're with people that you want to talk to, uh, it would be a great thing to only have the visual of, uh, to like pick apart and wonder about with people. <laughs> what am I looking at? What is happening here? Yeah. What is this thing? <laughs> when it was like to go from like Paul Stanley in like the, the like Vaseline lensed, uh, four way <laughs> bed to the sort of like Lynchian, tableau of like one light on chris holmes in the pool while his mom just sort of painfully looks on oh oh when they ask his mom what do you think about all this she goes i don't think about it (laughs) just what a drag i know (laughs) uh or when when she asks the mom if if chris drinks a lot he says only when he's awake and then just sort of like stares Mm -hmm. off god I want to know what's going on in her head. They show a couple close-ups of her where she, her face is expressionless. Like, it's not even sad. It's just... Resigned. Yeah. It's yeah, like exactly. a thousand-yard yeah. stare, like she's <laughs> yeah. on the front lines or something. Yeah. yeah. He did write a letter to her thanking her for raising him. And, and after he got clean, he was like, you know what? You did a really good job, and I probably couldn't have gotten through that without you and dad raising me. I was like, oh, that's wow, nice. beautiful. Yeah. yeah, that's beautiful. 
Well, I feel we've rocked it. We've rocked it all out. We've rocked it so hard. So good. Throwing up the horns. Mike, where can people find you online? Oh, I can be found, uh, you know, mostly on the social media. Mm. Twitter and, and Instagram is where I'm most active. I have a website, mikeadams.info. It's outdated. I need this. This will be me saying the URL on this show will make me uh, have to update it. But otherwise, Mike Adams at his honest weight on Instagram is where I'm getting the word out mostly. And Thomas is more of a Twitter guy. Oh, I, I am on Twitter. Yeah. If you want to follow me and you're listening to the show for the first time, uh, you can follow me at handsome underscore pal. I'll be saying stuff on there. And. I'm on Twitter at BethyBSQU, and if you want to say something nice to me because Marvel stands have been yelling at me all week because I called Brie Larson a prominent YouTuber, and people thought genuinely thought that I didn't know that she won an Oscar, that would be nice. Say nice things to Bethy. Sorry, Bethy, did I miss uh, why Marvel heads are mad at you? Yeah, it's because in a Vulture article, I, I said prominent YouTuber Brie Larson is joining the Fast family. <laughs> and everyone thought that I was like dissing her, whereas I just think it's insane that she is a YouTube. Like, I understand many people, honestly, many people have won Oscars, but she's the only one with a YouTube channel. Oh, no, now Will Smith, too, also is a YouTuber slash Oscar winner. It is insane, but also, like, you're not insulting her because she made a point that, like, she she is very intentionally stepping into this space. Thank so, you. if anything, you're honoring her wishes. I'm sorry I'm a bigger Brie Larson fan than you are. Yeah, those, Carol, those Marvel freaks can blow. I'm, I'm going to talk to the YouTube heads. They understand. Yeah. The show has a Twitter, which is MovieBarPod, and an Instagram at MovieBar underscore pod. So thank you so much uh, for listening and um, chug some vodka in a pool for us someday. Or don't. Responsibly. Watching Movies at the Bar is edited by Colin Jenkins with show art by Lindsay Farrell and that theme you hear at the top, that's Quentin Mulligan. Quentin Mulligan.